Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. Blessed has become an overused word in our culture. Blessed has become a often misused word in North American Christian culture. Blessed is something that I think we take for granted, and blessed is something that we hope for in our lives. We, we hope for blessing, but oftentimes we don't realize that blessing doesn't look like the North American version of blessing. Today we're going to look at, a, we're, we're starting a series that's going to kind of carry us up to Thanksgiving, uh, and we're going to do this series on the Sermon on the Mount. We can't hit every part of the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to spend about five weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to start with the Beatitudes, blessed are. So we're going to take a, a, a kind of deeper dive into that today, and and it's been a while since I've actually preached on the Beatitudes, but if you've been around long enough, you might remember that we have covered the Beatitudes before. But today, I kind of want to look at a look at these Beatitudes from fresh eyes, not with North American eyes, not from this idea that we want God to bless us with the things that we want. (laughs) We're going to look at it from a total different perspective. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow on the screen or like me on a smart device, whether it's your phone or or a tablet. I don't think I've ever seen someone with a laptop in here. All right. The Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds... He, he being Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, this is the setting, right? This is the sentence which we find the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. But there's some theological importance to this setting for the sermon. So let's pick this apart a little bit. First off, seeing the crowds. Jesus had performed miracles, and people had started to hear about him, and they were coming out in droves just to see him. He was kind of a spectacle. And in a culture that didn't have a whole lot of entertainment, having this guy walk around and perform miracles and talk to people and hear him and experience him, all of that, that was like the only show in town, right? So everybody wanted to be a part of what was going on, and so the crowds showed up for this guy. And he went up on the mountain. Now, in Israel, he was up close to the Sea of Galilee, which, if you've been following all that's been going on in Israel, the Sea of Galilee is in the northern tier of Israel, and it's pretty far away from the things that are going on in the Gaza. So it's very idyllic, and where the places in the southern part of Israel are kind of arid and desert-like, You would have oasis, this beautiful oasis of growth along the river. But outside of that, it's just kind of deserty and rocky. 
Well, in the Galilee, it's very patcher, uh, uh, pastoral. Pa- what's the word? I'm pastoral, but I'm like, that's no, that means a pastor, like pastoral. Anyway, pastures, farms, rolling hills. It's very beautiful. And you have a sea, and you have these hills that come up from right at the edge of the sea, and they go up uh, to some elevation, but they're not really mountains. So there is no place next to the sea where this takes place where there's a literal mountain. It's more like a, a hill, a large hill. But there's a reason why he uses the word mountain. Why do you think that is, not rhetorical? It's where the law is coming. The law was given on, on the mountain to Moses. So God shows up on the mountain. Moses receives the law from God on a mountain. All right? So this is a mountain. It was a mountain where the first law came. Now there's a mountain where the new law comes. What else? Why do you think he uses mountain here? Yes, a mountain signifies the rule, the authority, the government of God, right? What else happens on mountains? And if you think through your biblical history, what kind of things happen on mountains? Yeah. Yeah, so there were sacrifices on the top of mountains. It was the place where you went and you served God, right? You gave yourself or you gave a sacrifice to God on the mountaintops. Mountaintops are the places that are thin places where the heaven, the realm of God and earth, our realm, come close in their theology and their thoughts. And so he uses the word mountain here, not as a literal mountain, but as a metaphorical mountain. He goes up on the mountain to preach. He wants to point to the fact, and we know this because he makes it clear at the beginning of Matthew, that Jesus is a type of Moses. He is the new Moses, and he's going to lead his people out of slavery into a new land of promise. And so just like Moses went up on the mountain to receive the commandments, Now Jesus goes up on the mountain, but not to receive the commandments, but to teach them. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So who who is the audience here? When he speaks, who's the audience? The disciples. Now the crowds have gathered, and they're a little bit further down, but they're probably within earshot. But Jesus is really focused on teaching the disciples. And he sits down, which is a posture that the rabbi has when he is discipling, when he is leading, when he is trying to encourage his followers, his disciples. So the rabbi sits down. In this sitting down, we are to get in our mind, or at least the first people who heard this story of Jesus would have understood that this is an action of a rabbi. He is sitting down, and he's about to say something important. It is a message about the truth of God. It is the place where God's governance shows up, and it's what God wants his people to hear. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the righteousness sake, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are eight beatitudes or blessings. But what if I told you that this word isn't blessed? It's a bad translation. It doesn't mean blessed or blessing. There's another Greek word for that. The reason why we use it is because really in German, some of the first translations, and in English, there is no good word. There's no good word for this Greek word. So we say blessed are the poor in spirit. Other translations, does anybody else have a different translation other than blessed? Some translations say happy. Yes, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's not a good translation either. Fortunate might be a better translation it's hard to take this idea and translate it into English because we really don't have this idea. It's this notion that we are blessed by, what, by our circumstances. Blessed not in a theological sense, but you should, be, you should count yourself as fortunate might be a way to translate it. So every one of these blessings is a count yourself as fortunate for this reason. So let's go through a few of these and parse the, pick them apart and, and try to figure out what it means for us. Now the first thing that you ought to notice as you read this list is that it doesn't sound very blessed or very fortunate to have all of these things, right? It doesn't sound like it's a blessing. It's not fortunate to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to, meet, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for mercy and for pure of heart and, and to be a peacemaker. All of those things were weakness or considered weakness, particularly in the Greek culture. But every single one of these has a tie or a connection back to the Old Testament teachings. So what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the Old Testament and he's wrapping it up in something that's very easily understood for his hearers, for his disciples. And it became almost a, um, a very easy memorization for him to be able to go through. Blessed are the, or for his disciples to, to memorize. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit, in Luke it says, blessed are the poor. And there's a lot of, a lot of back and forth in, in academia and in, 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 um, biblical studies about what it means to be poor in spirit. It doesn't mean to be physically, literally poor. And the answer to that is yes, but no. There's a notion of that, but the real thing is a person who is poor in spirit is someone who looks at their life situation and looks at the world around them and is broken in their spirit for what they see. It's someone who looks at the brokenness of the world and says, this is not right. It's someone whose spirit is broken because they hurt for all the things that they see that aren't right in this world. Does that make sense? 
So the poor in spirit are those who have the eyes of Christ, who look at the world and say, you know what, this isn't right. This, this isn't what it should be. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. But there's a promise with each one of these, and this promise is the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've talked about this before a lot here at the Grove. When you read kingdom of heaven, particularly in Matthew, it doesn't mean heaven like something far up there, like we're going to all get there one day and it's up in the clouds and we're going to be, you know, with wings and harps and all that stuff. It's not anything like that. Kingdom of heaven is anywhere that God is in control. Anywhere that God's reign is taking place. So the kingdom of heaven is already and not yet. It's already here with anybody who submits themselves to the lordship of Christ. Anybody who puts their life under the rule of God, they are in his kingdom. And at one day, there's going to be a consummation where everything is made right. Where there is renewal and redemption, total renewal, total redemption, and everything is set right, and, and the kingdom of heaven and earth will be the same. Right now, there are people on earth that are living in the kingdom because we are not of this world, but there is going to be a time when that other world comes and the two align, and it becomes the same. So what... What Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who look at this world and see that it's not right, that there is something wrong with it, there, there's a better way, and that better way is the kingdom of God. The better way of life is what God wants to do in and through us. The better way of life is what God wants to do here and now if we just let Him. Blessed are those who see that it's not right, because they understand there's a better kingdom. They understand that God's way is better than what the world offers. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Now, oftentimes we read this and it's read at funerals, but it doesn't mean personal loss. It goes along with the first one. People who mourn are people who look at all that's going on at the loss and the grief and the hurt in the world, and it hurts them too. They mourn what they see. And he says, if you look out and you mourn and your heart breaks, if you watch the news and your heart breaks for what's going on in the Middle East, one day you will be comforted. Understand that this is temporary. That there is comfort at the end of the brokenness you feel. But it also does mean personal loss. It's both in. So if you have personal loss in your life and you mourn, God wants to show up and be the comforter. He wants to be the one that gets you through that mourning. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek are those who, who aren't haughty. The meek are the humble. The meek are the ones who don't say, well, it's my way or the highway. The meek are the ones who love. The meek are the, one who, the ones who look at people that are different than them and say, you know what? I'm not going to judge. Instead, 
Instead, I want to impact you and change you and be an instrument for planting seeds to do good in your life. To be meek is to be actively working for good in other people's lives. They're promised that they will inherit the earth one day. It's a promise that the, that the coming future kingdom or that the kingdom as it inbreaks in our hearts, as the kingdom works in us, we become a people who are meek. And even if we don't get meekness in return, one day we will. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These are those who are desperately seeking to live for God, those who want what He has, those who want to align their lives with Christ. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. But here's the opposite of that, and this is where most of us live in our world. We hunger and thirst for things of this world. We hunger and thirst for comfort. We hunger and thirst for stability. We hunger and thirst for whatever it is that we hunger and thirst for. For as many people are as in this room or are watching online, we all have different hungers and thirsts that we try to satiate with things from this world. And the point here is that if you're trying to seek anything else in the world to fill your hunger, your need, it's going to be, it's going to let you down. It's not going to be enough. There's only one thing that satisfies and it's seeking Christ and His life in you above all else. Nothing else you pursue will satisfy you. And this word for satisfied means to be full and satiated, not like just full in your stomach, but then also pleasantly satisfied with what you just ate. It's like eating the best meal you've ever had and sitting back and going, whoa, wow, that was good. That's what this word satisfied kind of has in mind in the original language. So if you really want to be satisfied, if you want to taste and see what it is God wants you to taste and see, then seek Him. And He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Guys, we have, we have in our culture an attitude of selfishness and haughtiness we have an attitude of tit for tat you do to me I'm gonna do back to you we have an attitude of folding our arms and saying well if you're gonna treat me like that I'm gonna treat you like that right back and that's wrong. Mercy says no matter what has happened to me, no matter what anybody else does, I'm going to love back. I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to show grace. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The prayer of mercy from the cross for Jesus Guys, what would our world look like if we all if we all showed mercy and grace? If we tore down the walls of division, 
if we decided that we're not going to let someone else's actions repel us from loving them the way Christ would love them, think about what our world would look like. To show mercy is to say, I don't know what all's going on, but I choose to love. It's the ultimate act of what Jesus did, and he's calling us to it, and he was calling his disciples to it, and this is radically different. In their culture, as we're seeing played out now, you hurt me, I hurt you back. You punch, I punch back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But in Jesus' new way of being kingdom people, he's saying, no, it's mercy, love, be merciful, forgive. Show grace. And quite frankly, it's the most like Christ we can be. Then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Those are the ones who don't let any of the other things in this life kind of eat away the darkness. It's saying that I want to become single-minded and focused on God. I want my eyes to be focused on Him. And the promise is, if we focus our eyes on Him, focus the eyes of my heart, Lord. Y'all didn't know this was going to be uh, part, of, uh, part of the sermon today. But, for they shall see God. Open my eyes that I can see you. Now, guys... In their culture, you can't see God unless you're holy. And there's only one place where you can encounter God, and that's in His temple, right? And only in the Holy of Holies. And only in the Holy of Holies, when you've been purified, can you come face to face with God. What they're saying is that the pure of heart are those who have cleansed themselves, and if they cleanse themselves, you don't have to go to the Holy of Holies. You can see God. He will show up in your life. He is there and present. Just open your eyes to Him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And ladies, as I say, I can be a bride if you can be a son, right? It's a theological statement. To be a son is a good thing if you're a woman. It means that you actually have clout and that you matter. So blessed are the peacemakers. This goes right in line with this idea of mercy. It's saying, I choose to be an agent of peace and love in a world that badly needs it. It's saying that I'm going to put aside all of the nyan-nyan, all the other stuff going on, and I want to be a peacemaker. I'm going to rise above it, and I'm going to be Christ in this situation. I'm going to show love. Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, means complete well-being. It means renewal. Maybe you need to renew something. Maybe God's calling you to renewal. Maybe He's calling you to reconciliation. That's what... That's what it means. Maybe he's calling you to set something right that needs to be set right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Because when we, again, act as peacemakers, we are most like Jesus. We are most like the Son. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts in the first beatitude with the last phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 
And he ends in verse 10 with this phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's eight beatitudes. The first and the eighth have this phrase at the end. They're the bookends. And in both cases, it points to the idea that we, as God's disciples, as his followers, as his people, are called to live as if he is our king right now. Already, not waiting for some future where we're going to be made whole, but now. We are called in this moment, every day of our life, in every situation we're in, to reflect his kingdom and his kingdom values. And what are his kingdom values? His kingdom values are to mourn what you see around you, to let your heart break for what's not right, to be meek and humble, to hunger and thirst and pursue him, to show mercy and to be a peacemaker, to be a pure person of heart, to where you try to put aside anything that's distracting you from him and to seek him fully. That's what it means to live out his kingdom here on earth now. And all too often I find myself choosing a couple of these and saying, yeah, I'm good at that. I can handle that. But this other one, I don't know. I don't know if I really, really, really want to be a peacemaker. I don't know if I want to show mercy. God, I don't know if I really want to be persecuted persecuted for your sake. Because if you live out these principles, you will be different. And particularly in their setting, it ended up costing them their lives. But his promise is something greater. So I say to you as we close today, be blessed. (laughs) But not blessed in the way we think about it in North America. Consider yourself fortunate if and when you live under the Lordship and the kingdom principles of Christ. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.